This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year 2009, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2009. We look at the case for putting Jethro Tull into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2009. In music, the major story was the death of Michael Jackson. BET Television did a tribute to him during their BET Awards, which was passable at best. It was overshadowed earlier in the day, actually, when Michael's father, Joe Jackson, didn't even talk about his son during the red carpet interviews before the awards, but rather Joe decided to push his new music project. Gotta love family love sometimes. A month later, the MTV Video Music Awards paid tribute to Michael Jackson with a performance by his sister Janet Jackson and a speech by Madonna. But even that was all overshadowed by the now infamous Kanye West interrupting Taylor Swift's speech incident. Meanwhile, in 2009, Chris Brown was charged with assaulting Rihanna the night before the Grammy Awards. The Concert Hussett Concert Hall opened up in Copenhagen, Denmark. The inauguration of President Barack Obama drew star-studded power to inauguration concerts and balls, including Beyonce, who, according to the media, got into trouble with singer Etta James because Etta supposedly didn't like the fact that Beyonce performed Etta's classic at last as the first dance song for the president and First Lady Michelle Obama. No one was quite sure what the beef was really about, or, since it was reported in the media, whether Etta was really angry, to be honest. But, as you'll see later, beef was the word of the year, and it wasn't just Kanye versus Taylor or Etta versus Beyonce. The biggest album of the year in America was Taylor Swift's Fearless. The biggest album of the year worldwide, though, was by Britain's Got Talent contestant Susan Boyle. Other big albums were done by U2, Lady Gaga, Eminem, Michael Bublé, Andrea Bocelli, Jay-Z, The Black Eyed Peas, Kings of Leon, the Hannah Montana movie soundtrack, and three of Michael Jackson's albums, because death is always a great career move, you're just not around to enjoy the benefits. In fact, even though he didn't have the biggest selling album of the year, Michael Jackson was still the biggest selling artist of the year, selling 35 million copies of his albums worldwide right after his death along with his documentary, This Is It, becoming the biggest documentary of all time up to that point, making over $250 million U.S. 2009 was also Lady Gaga's coming out party, with three of the biggest hits of the year being Just Dance, Telephone, and Poker Face. The Black Eyed Peas also had a big year with Boom Boom Pow and I Got a Feelin'. Other big-selling singles of 2009 included Beyoncé's Single Ladies, 
Taylor Swift's Love Story and Also You Belong With Me, Flow Riders Right Round, Jason Mraz's I'm Yours, Kanye's Heartless, and the All-American Rejects Give You Hell. In country music, Garth Brooks came out of his self-imposed exile to start a five-year Las Vegas residency. Big albums were released by Brad Paisley, Miranda Lambert, Martina McBride, Tim McGraw, Carrie Underwood, Toby Keith, Keith Urban, the Hannah Montana movie soundtrack, and two greatest hits albums from Kenny Chesney and Brooks and Dunn. Having big hit singles in 2009 were Taylor Swift's You Belong With Me, Sugarland's Already Gone, Lady Antebellum, now known as Lady A, with I Run To You, Kenny Chesney's Out Last Night, Toby Keith's God Love Her, Darius Rucker's It Won't Be Like This For Long, Jason Aldean's Big Green Tractor, Alan Jackson's Country Boy, Carrie Underwood's Cowboy Casanova, Rascal Flatts' Here Comes Goodbye, George Strait's River of Love, Blake Shelton's She Would Have Been Gone, Keith Urban's Only You Could Love Me This Way, and the Zac Brown Band's Toes. In hip-hop, it was definitely the year of beef as 50 Cent and Rick Ross, Beanie Siegel and 50 Cent versus Jay-Z, Method Man versus Joe Budden, Young Jeezy and DJ Drama, Trina and Kia, and Soldier Boy and Bow Wow decided to all go at it because absolutely no one learned from the Tupac Biggie beef of the 90s. Go figure. For instance, Joe Budden was physically attacked by Method Man's fellow Wu-Tang Clan member Raekwon a few months after their beef started. Idiots. Ending beef, though, that year were The Game versus 50 Cent, while Soldier Boy tried to end his beef with The New Boys. Musically, though, Drake released his mixtape So Far Gone, which had Best I Ever Had on it. Eminem's Crack a Bottle and Flo Rider's Right Round both hit number one, but the biggest and probably most enduring hip-hop song from 2009 was Jay-Z and Alicia Keys' New York City anthem, Empire's State of Mind. Other hits included Jay-Z and Rihanna's Run This Town, Fabulous's Throw It in the Bag, Kanye's Heartless, Lil Wayne's Prop Queen, T.I.'s Dead and Gone, and Kid Cudi's Day and Night. Big albums that year were released by Eminem, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Rick Ross, Young Money, Jadakiss, Kid Cudi, Fabulous, Gucci Mane, and UGK. EDM started to become more mainstream, mainly due to David Guetta helping to produce the Black Eyed Peas smash album, and his song with Kelly Rowland, When Love Takes Over, making way for other artists to want to work with EDM producers, which all led to the EDM explosion only about a year or two later. Big EDM albums included Dead Mouses, for lack of a better name, Major Lazer's Guns Don't Kill People, Lasers Do. The Prodigy's Invaders Must Die, Calvin Harris's Ready for the Weekend, and Moby's Wait for Me. Other dance hits besides the Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling, and Boom Boom Pow included Cascade's Move for Me, Dizzy Rascal's Dirty Cash, LaRoe's Bulletproof, Axwell and Grosso's Leave the World Behind, Dead Mouse's EDM classic Ghosts and Stuff, Cascada's Evacuate the Dance Floor, Fetty Legrand's influential dance track, Put Your Hands Up for Detroit. I love this city. 
David Guetta's Memories, along with Sexy Bitch with Akon, Boys Noises' Jeffer, Christine W.'s Be Alright, while Lady Gaga owned the dance floor with her big three hits. The top 10 DJs on DJ Mag's Top 100 DJs poll for the year were Armin Van Buren, Tiesto, David Guetta, Above and Beyond, Paul Van Dyke, Dead Mouse, Ferry Corsten, Marcus Schultz, Gareth Emery, and Sander Van Dorn. In Latin music, the biggest artists of the year were Aventura, who also had the biggest album, Banda El Recodo, which had the biggest single, Wisen Yandel, Luis Fonzi, Vicente Fernandez, Daddy Yankee, El Trono de Mexico, Nesti, Ricardo Arjona, and Tito El Bambino. On May 12, 2009, at a White House event celebrating poetry, Lin-Manuel Miranda tried out an idea he had by rapping about Alexander Hamilton. The response that he received inspired him to flesh out his idea some more, and that idea became the blockbuster Broadway sensation Hamilton, which came to Broadway in 2015. Meanwhile on Broadway, the 2009-2010 Broadway season was the first season that the total box office grossed over $1 billion U.S. dollars. Musicals or revivals of musicals that opened in 2009 included 9 to 5, The Musical, Bye Bye Birdie, Fella, about Fella Kuti, Guys and Dolls, Irving Berlin's White Christmas, Hair, Memphis the Musical, Rock of Ages, and West Side Story. Bands who formed in 2009 included AWOL Nation, Basement, Diddy Dirty Money, Duck Sauce, Foster the People, Icona Pop, 21 Pilots, Nick Jonas and the Organization, and Zed's Dead. Bands that either broke up in 2009 before their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included All Saints, Love and Rockets, Live, Blue Cheer, Danity Kane, Divinals, EMF, Oasis after yet more beef, this time between the Gallagher brothers, Peter, Paul, and Mary, mainly due to one of them passing away, Fallout Boy, Hanoi Rocks, The Verve, The Violent Femmes, Stereo Lab, and Escape. Bands that either reunited or came back from their extended breaks in 2009 included the Bee Gees, Blink-182, Cinderella, Creed, The Cranberries, Faith No More, House of Pain, Johnny Hates Jazz, Mott the Hoople, Mr. Big, Fish, The Plastic Ono Band, Public Image Limited, Skunk Anansi, Spandau Ballet, Wang Chung, Sublime, and The Jacksons. Aside from Michael Jackson, other major music deaths included guitarist Ron Ashton of the Stooges, guitar crate Les Paul, DJ AM, Billy Powell of Leonard Skinnerd, singer Dan Seals, former basketball player and jazz man Wayman Tisdale, blues great Coco Taylor, singer Al Martino, Avenged Sevenfold's founder The Rev, singer Vic Chestnut, singer Carla Boni, Singer Stephen Gately of Boyzone, singer Taylor Mitchell, singer Mercedes Sosa, DJ Rock Rada, singer Willie DeVille, drummer Uriel Jones of Motown's house band The Funk Brothers, Randy Kane of The Delphonics, Bob Bogle of The Ventures, 
rapper Dalla, Steve Ferguson of NRBQ, opera singer Shi-Pei Pu, the father of Latin boogaloo Joe Cuba, singer Vern Gosden, composer Maurice Jarre, singer Alain Bashung, singer Hank Lachlan, Lux Interior of the Cramps, Dewey Martin of Buffalo Springfield, and Mary Travers, the Mary of Peter, Paul, and Mary, who passed away that year, which led to the breakup of the group. In awards for the music of 2009, at the Grammy Awards, Taylor Swift's Fearless won Album of the Year, making her, at the age of 20, the youngest winner of the award, until Billie Eilish beat that record a decade later. Record of the Year went to Kings of Leon's Use Somebody, Beyonce won Song of the Year for Single Ladies, and the Zac Brown Band won Best New Artist. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Beyonce won Video of the Year for Single Ladies, although, as mentioned before, Kanye stole the show and not in a good way. At the American Music Awards, Taylor Swift won Artist of the Year, Beyonce won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards, the Billboard Music Awards weren't actually held in 2009. Lady Gaga's Born This Way won Favorite Album, and Katy Perry and Kanye's song E.T. won Favorite Song at the People's Choice Awards. Taylor Swift won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards and also won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Florence and the Machine won Best British Album for Lungs, and JLS won Best Song for Beat Again at the Brit Awards. Kanan won Artist of the Year, Michael Bublé's Crazy Love won Best Album, while Michael's song, Haven't Met You Yet, won Best Song at the Juno Awards. Empire of the Sun won Album of the Year for Walking on a Dream, and they also won Song of the Year for Walking on a Dream at the Aria Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held that year in Moscow, Russia, Norway won for the song Fairy Tale. At the Tony Awards, Billy Elliot the Musical won Best Musical, and Hair won Best Revival of a Musical. Stephen Reich's song Double Sextet won the Pulitzer Prize for Music. For the Academy Awards Music Categories, the soundtrack to Up won Best Film Score, while The Weary Kind from the movie Crazy Heart won Best Song. Speech DeVille won the Mercury Music Prize, becoming the first woman in seven years to actually win that award. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place on April 4th at the Public Auditorium Inn for the first time in 12 years, Cleveland, Ohio. It was also the first time that the public were allowed to buy tickets to the event. At the ceremony, bass guitarist Bill Black, drummer DJ Fontana, and keyboardist Spooner Oldman were inducted into the Sidemen category. That was the final year of the Sidemen category, as the category was expanded upon in 2010 and became the Award for Musical Excellence category. In the Early Influencers category, the Hall inducted Wanda Jackson. And in the Performers category, the Hall inducted Metallica, Bobby Womack, Jeff Beck, Little Anthony and the Imperials, and this next group. The original nicknames to this group were DJ Run, Don of Curtis Blow, Easy D, and Jazzy Jace. 
In the very early 80s, there were three kids who grew up in Hollis, Queens. Joseph Simmons had an older brother named Russell, who was a hip-hop promoter and had started a record label with his college roommate, Rick Rubin, called Def Jam Records. Russell, at the time, promoted rapper Curtis Blow and needed someone to be Curtis's DJ. Joseph was recruited to be the DJ that time. And soon, Joseph wanted to rap. Russell let Joseph record one song, which went absolutely nowhere. In the meantime, Joseph had a friend called Daryl McDaniel. The two of them wanted to rap as a duo. At first, Russell said no because he didn't like Daryl's rap style, but eventually he said yes. They needed a DJ, though, so they got their friend Jason Mazel. Russell then changed all their nicknames. Joseph DJ Run, son of Curtis Blow, became Run. Daryl Easy D became DMC, and Jason Jazzy Jace became Jam Master J, and the group became known as Run DMC. For the record, they all hated the name of the group, but it kind of grew on them after a while. They signed to Profile Records and released their first single, It's Like That. The song hit number 15 on the Billboard R&B charts. After that success, they released their first album, Run DMC, in 1984. That album had hits like Hard Times on it. It also had the transcending song, Rock Box, with a mixture of hip-hop and hard rock, complete with the blistering guitar of session musician Eddie Paul Martinez, the song was one of the first to combine what were, at least at that point, two separate worlds, black inner-city hip-hop and white heavy metal. Both were considered dangerous in the eyes of the mainstream, which actually made them a perfect combination for the kids. 1985 was a big year for the group from a career perspective. First, they released their next album, King of Rock, which further solidified their sound with the songs King of Rock and Can You Rock It Like This. They were then the only hip-hop act to perform at Live Aid. They followed that up with an appearance in the hit movie Crush Groove. 1986 saw their biggest success with one of the most important albums of the 1980s, Raising Hell. The album was produced by Rick Rubin, who had a major role in one of the most important songs of all time. The album was almost done when they decided to do one more song to pique interest from their fans who liked the hard rock sounds of King of Rock and Rockbox. After some discussion, they fell upon the idea of doing the song Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Originally, they were going to sample the song, but Rick and Jam Master Jay wanted to redo the song completely. They put out the call to Aerosmith to gauge interest. At first, there really wasn't any. What has to be remembered at this time is that in 1985, no one liked Aerosmith. Known as the Toxic Twins at that point, Aerosmith's Steven Tyler and Joe Perry were looked at as part of a group whose heyday was actually in the 1970s and had fallen on hard times and had literally broken up because they had a lot of drug, alcohol, and other internal band issues. They were at that point done as a band and literally a joke. Even with their careers in freefall, Stephen and Joe didn't actually want to do Walk This Way because they hated hip-hop. See, to them and a lot of other artists, hip-hop was taking their songs using them without paying the artists and making money off of them, 
which was essentially true, to be honest with you. The Toxic Twins wanted no part of it. Rick actually convinced them to come to the studio to try to work things out a little. And then once Stephen and Joe saw how Jam Master Jay could cut the record precisely where he wanted the beat to be at will on the turntables, they were fascinated. And then they wanted in on the collaboration. The music video also became iconic. The video unfolds with both acts on opposite sides of a wall. Then once Run DMC starts rapping loud to the beat, Stephen breaks through the wall with a mic stand. Then everybody ends up on a concert stage together as a show of solidarity and breaking down the barriers between both the rock and hip-hop cultures. Everybody sings Kumbaya, and everybody hugs and holds hands in a sign Okay, it didn't get quite that crazy, but you get the idea. Rumor has it, though, that Stephen couldn't break down the wall at first, but they actually left that part in during the final cut for the video. The song, the album, and the music video all became huge hits, along with becoming icons in 1980s music. It also gave Aerosmith their career back as the band got back together and started putting out hit songs like Love in an Elevator, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, Jaded, and many, many others. After the success of Raising Hell, Run DMC put out Tougher Than Leather and Down With The King, but by then... The sound that the group had pioneered had already changed, and so did they. Run, for instance, became a minister, while Jay became a producer, producing the group Onyx, who had the hit song Slam. The three guys started to not get along, and they started to go their separate ways musically. Unfortunately, in 2002, Jam Master Jay was shot and killed in his studio in Queens, New York. His murder was finally solved almost 20 years later. Run DMC was one of the most influential hip-hop groups of all time. They later influenced rock rap acts like Korn, Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit, The Prodigy, and others. They were the first hip-hop act on American Bandstand, the first hip-hop act to earn a gold album with Run DMC, the first hip-hop act to have a platinum album with King of Rock, and the first hip-hop act to have a multi-platinum album with Raising Hell. They were also the first hip-hop act to get played on MTV, and they were the first hip-hop act to be nominated for a Grammy Award. Presented for induction by Class of 2023 Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Eminem, Joseph Revrun Simmons, Daryl DMC McDaniels, Jason Jam Master J. Mizell. Run DMC. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2009, and we've put their greatest hits album onto this week's podcast playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the events, music releases, births, and passings for that day in music history. The Music History Today podcast drops each and every day, including on the weekends, on this channel, the Music History Today Network, and also on our Music History Today Network YouTube page. Now, back to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. 
This week, we look at the case for putting the progressive rock band Jethro Tull into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As is the usual, to the tale of the tape we go. Jethro Tull released 23 studio albums, 9 live albums, 15 compilation albums, and 4 EPs. Of those, 18 hit the top 40 in America. Of those 18, 7 hit the top 10, with 2 of those 7 hitting number 1, those two being 1972's Thick as a Brick and 1973's A Passion Play. In the group's home country of the United Kingdom, 26 albums hit the top 40, including their first 19 studio albums. Of those 26, seven hit the top 10, including their number one album, 1969's Stand Up. Jethro Tull also released 33 singles. Of those, 10 hit the top 40 in America. Of those 10, four hit the top 10, with the highest getting to number six. In the UK, four hit the top 40, with three of those four hitting the top 10, with the highest charting at number three. Those are some pretty solid stats for commercial success, mind you. They were also a very influential band, especially with their signature sound of combining folk and blues music with progressive rock. Some of the artists who were on record as saying that they were influenced by Jethro Tull include Iron Maiden, Dream Theater, Blind Guardian, Wasp, Pearl Jam, The Decemberists, Genesis, Yes, King Crimson, and Griffin. Plus, Ian Anderson's flute playing proved that the flute is a heavy metal instrument after all. Who knew? So, why haven't these progressive rock gods have been inducted yet? Well, one reason might be the fact that the Hall rarely puts in progressive rock artists. There's Genesis, there's Yes, there's Rush, and that's about it. And Yes and Rush took years to be inducted, by the way, as did Genesis, actually. That's probably the main reason. Still, if you want to go all QAnon about it and look for a conspiracy theory, then maybe the Hall hates bands that have the flute as a major instrument. Or maybe the Hall still holds a grudge because Jethro Tull beat out Metallica for the first Best Heavy Metal Album Grammy Award. Still smarting over that. I mean, that was just ridiculous. Anyway, it has to be one of those reasons, I'm pretty sure. Why not? Let's go with it. Otherwise, you wouldn't actually have a legitimate reason to keep this group out. I mean, why wouldn't you put a group that's so obviously qualified as Jethro Tull into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And to prove it, we put their music on this week's podcast playlist. Like I said with Run DMC, the link is in the show notes just to prove it to you. This week's Spotlight Museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The museum is located on the National Mall, right across the street from the Washington Monument. The museum highlights the experience and contributions of African Americans to specifically America and, more broadly, the world. 
A lot of the museum deals with slavery and civil rights. There's an actual slave cabin, an airplane that was flown by a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, as well as items pertaining to the military, religion, literature, and politics. The museum also has an extensive collection of artifacts concerning music. The museum boasts Chuck Berry's Pink Cadillac, for instance. Also, stage costumes worn by Parliament Funkadelic and others, along with other recordings, sheet music, photos, and such. There's also a great online resource on their website where they put a lot of their collection online for people to look at. The museum is open daily from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Admission is free. After all, your tax dollars paid for it. However, the only way that you can walk into the museum without a pass is if you show your military ID. Otherwise, you either have to try to get timed passes in the mornings, especially on the morning that you want to go, which really you need to get there early because those things run out very quickly. There is another way that you can get them. You can get passes in advance online. So check the museum's website, which is nmaahc.si.edu, for information about the time passes along with COVID admission information because, you know, those things tend to change on a whim depending on what's going on. We'll put the website's link in the show notes as well. Rosetta Rubin was born on March 20th, 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas to Katie Bell Newbin. At least that's the official story of her birth. Some researchers also think that her name was actually Rosetta Atkins and she was born to Katie Harper. Not much is known about her father except that he was a singer. What is definitely known is that Rosetta's mother was a singer who was also heavily involved in the church as a singer and a preacher. She was also a feminist who encouraged women in the congregation to sing, but Rosetta's mother also taught the spiritual word in church, which was relatively unheard of in that era. Rosetta's mother had an impact on her daughter, both in attitude and in her career choice. It was her mother who introduced Rosetta to gospel music and also to the guitar at age six. Rosetta became very proficient at playing the guitar and was, still at six years old, traveling and playing with her mother as part of a traveling ministry show. They toured the South for a few years until they moved to Chicago, Illinois. For the next decade, Rosetta and her mother toured the North, where Rosetta developed a reputation as a child prodigy. She also fell in love with, and at age 19, married a preacher who toured with them. At this point, Rosetta then took her new husband's last name, Thorpe, changed a vowel, and made that her stage name that we all know her by now, Sister Rosetta Tharp. At the age of 23, Rosetta started recording gospel songs for Decca Records. In fact, she recorded her first four gospel songs while being backed up by an orchestra. Those four songs, The Lonesome Road, My Man and I, Rock Me, and That's All, became big hits and turned Rosetta into a sensation. The song Rock Me became a very influential song on future rock and roll artists like Elvis Presley and Little Richard. In 
Her song, Down by the Riverside, was selected for preservation at the National Recording Registry of the U.S. Library of Congress. Some of her songs actually ended up creating some controversy for her. See, at the time, it was tough being a female guitarist, as they were pretty rare at that point. It was even rarer when the female guitarist was black. What Rosetta did with her music, and one of the main reasons why she was finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was that she started combining gospel and secular music, and also started playing with secular artists in places like the Cotton Club in New York City. That did not sit well at all with the gospel crowd, who started leaving her. She actually wanted to go back to mainly gospel music in 1943, but she was obligated by her contract to play more secular recordings. Rosetta teamed up with Marie Knight and recorded a bunch of duets and went on tour with Marie. By the end of the 1940s, though, the partnership started to break up due to other artists like Mahalia Jackson gaining more popularity. Rosetta still kept touring and recording, even touring over in Europe, until her death from a stroke on October 9, 1973. Rosetta's influence on rock and roll is immeasurable. She influenced pretty much all of the early rock and roll artists, especially during a concert in Manchester, England on May 7, 1964, that was said to influence attendees Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, and Jeff Beck. Her use of heavy distortion in her guitar kick-started electric blues. Also, she set the bar for female guitarists with the tenacity and determination that she inherited from her mother. And you can find pictures and music from Sister Rosetta Tharp at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and, of course, we have put her greatest hits on our podcast playlist for this week, the link to which, as I've said already, is in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>